Thanks Hilt, it really is interesting times. I am in my lounge preaching this message at 8.30 at night. The first couple takes have had our kids walk through crying, so hopefully that doesn't happen this time. The last time um, we were preaching from home during lockdown, I only had two kids. We now have three kids, a four-year-old, two-year-old, and a 10-month-old. And as Hilt mentioned, um, Tony's been sick for so the last couple of days. I've had all three kids, and it has been um, a huge wake-up call about how much my wife does and a massive amount of gratitude is in my heart for anybody who looks after those kids, nannies, teachers. Um, I didn't know that there were 517 hours in a day, literally, has felt like the longest days. I mean, I love my kids, but do you remember being at school in double Afrikaans? Sorry to our Afrikaans teachers, but double Afrikaans, you'd look at the time, it was 10 past nine, and then half an hour later, you'd look at the time, and it was 13 minutes past nine. That is how I felt for the last couple of days. So please pray for Tony, um, pray for me, pray for our kids, that I keep treating them like Jesus. Um, but it really is a great privilege to be able to continue the series with you today, Prodigal God, which then was followed by Prodigal Response. He'll preach so well the last two weeks, basically prodigal looking like at this idea of being extravagant, just pouring out, being lavish. And we're going to be looking at the next three weeks um, and how do we respond to God lavishly? What does God require from us? And in fact, we're going to look at this incredible passage from Micah chapter 6, verse 8, um, that responds to this question of God, what do you require from us? And the rabbis actually said that if there was one sentence, one line to sum up the entire law, it would be Micah chapter 6, verse 8. And uh, the question is basically posed to God, God, what do you require of me? Is it more offerings? Is it more rituals? Is it more sacrifices? And it's a good question for you and I to ask, God, what do you, what do you want from me? What, what, what is your purpose for me? Because there's a lot of opinions and there's a lot of noise, but what a travesty it would be for you and me if we went through our entire lives and we just did what we thought was required. But a good question to ask, God, what do you require of me? So Micah chapter 6 verse 8 says this, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Another translation says it like this. What is required of us? Justice. You must do it. Mercy. You must love it. And humility. You must walk it. And uh, just to clarify in case anybody is asking the question, so do we have to do these three things to earn God's love or perhaps even a salvation we must remember that the starting point always, and that's why we started with the prodigal God, that he came after us first, that salvation is a free gift from God. Uh, maybe a better way to look at this is rather than an entrance exam to get God's love, it's a response from God's love. It's God, because of your great love towards me, what do you require? What do you want from me? It's like this job description here on earth. In fact, some versions don't use the word require, they actually change it. God, what do you desire from me? God, what do you want from me? And, and so the question begs to be asked of all of us, do our actions, does our life please God? Does it stir in his heart a desire um, to be with us and to want us? And in fact, these three points are, are really good because they're quite different and, and create this holistic view of our faith. Sometimes we're like really good at one part, Perhaps it's like the do justly, or maybe we're good at walk humbly. And the challenge here is to have this like holistic view of 
what God requires of us to walk humbly, act justly, and to love mercy. Uh, some scholars have put it into these words, our actions, our affections, our attitudes. Walk humbly, act justly, love mercy. It's almost as if God knew that left to ourselves, we would do the opposite. Our default human nature would not be that we would love mercy, it would be that we would pass judgment. It wouldn't be that we would act justly, it would be that we would live selfishly. And perhaps instead of walking humbly, we would be full of pride. In fact, a biblical scholar wrote it like this, humanity is unjust, oppressive, and in want of affection. I mean, pretty tough words, but you can see at its nth degree um, how humanity can be unjust, oppressive, and want affection. And so the next three weeks we're gonna unpack these. Today we're gonna look at walk humbly. Next week we're gonna look at act justly. And the following week we're gonna look at love, mercy. Don't you wanna take a moment with me as we just pray and ask God to do the work that only he, he can do in our hearts. Father, thank you. Even through this camera, to those in the room, to those online, I'm asking God that you would speak into our hearts. I'm praying for soft hearts right now. And that God, you would use the words of my mouth and they would be pleasing to you today. And so we thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so walk humbly. Uh, the idea of walking um, is, a, is a good place to start before we even look at humbly. And the idea of walking is it's the, the way in which your life is heading, the, the direction in which your life is heading. This idea of walking with God is, is scattered through the scriptures. It talks about walking blamelessly, walking uprightly, walking in the light. Um, and in fact, when it comes to um, Enoch, it actually says that God, uh, that Enoch walked with God and then was no more. God like was so engulfed in who he was and the fact that they had relationship that he took him home. And Noah, it speaks about Noah walking with God, and we know that he then builds a boat and rescues humanity. But this idea of walking with God is incredible because it doesn't give this idea of a forced or a harsh or like a running, but just this like ease and this comfortable relationship that God desires with us. Um, but I, I guess the key to the walking with God is the humbly. And so how do we walk humbly with God? Well, maybe the best way to unpack what humility is in God's eyes is to look at what the opposite is, pride. And I want to uh, create this kind of case study around pride that would hopefully show you how it's weaved its way into humanity and perhaps even your and my heart at times. And so I want to look at the problem with pride and then we're going to go to the hope of humility. So the problem with pride, I want to look at four, four, five points, sorry. The first is God hates pride. Let's make no mistake, in Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13, it says, I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior and perverse speech. And if you think, church, how many families and friendships and even nations are torn apart by pride because people are resentful and unforgiving and bitter and angry, it's all rooted in pride. If you think about our world today, that's a problem. So divided because everybody's right and Nobody else would listen or understand. In fact, even in conversations, we're not even, we, we're just waiting for the person to end so that we can tell them our view or our point. And the problem with pride is it's essentially principle above people. And God hates pride. Um, and so the first point is God hates pride. The second part is that he doesn't just hate pride. God opposes 
pride. In James chapter 4, verse 6, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud. That word oppose is a Greek word, and the Greek word is antitasso, which means to range in battle against. Basically, to be at war with God. So pride is not just a wall. Many times people think that pride is like a wall between us and God. Pride is not a wall. It's a war between us and God. And the one person you and I do not want to be at war with is God. Our pride doesn't just separate us, but it causes God to oppose us, to be at war with us, to be at enmity with the plan and purpose and the intimacy and the relationship that he wants with us. So God doesn't just hate pride. He opposes it. Satan himself fell because of his pride. Listen to what it says. I will send above the hearts of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high, Isaiah 14, verse 14. Basically, this is the devil saying, I will become like God so that I will be worshipped. Now, I know that we probably wouldn't use the word worship, but we do like people liking us. And we do like people elevating and talking highly of us. And there's something in us, if we don't watch it, Pride, where we just look for people's adoration and attention and affection. People saying, man, you're the best and you're better than so-and-so and you're so good looking and nobody's quite like you and uh, you're the best mom and you the... And we almost start to build our lives around people's affections and attention and adoration and, and ultimately that's worship. And there's nothing wrong with obviously giving or receiving compliments. It's just the motives the intention behind why we position our lives around that. And so Satan positioned his, and that's why he fell, the Bible speaks about, is from pride. And humanity, Adam, the first man, his first sin was around pride. Listen how the devil comes and tempts him. He says, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will be like God. And still to this day, many people, many of us perhaps, want to be like God. We want to be in charge. We want to be in control. Nobody tells me what to do. Nobody tells me how to spend my money or live my life or what I should do with my time. And the challenge for all of us here is, is God on the throne or are we on the throne? Has pride found its way in? The, the scriptures say that we should confess our sin one to another, but pride would keep us from doing that. Pride would keep us from help. Pride will keep us from being vulnerable. And so you can see that pride is not just something that God hates or opposes. It's not just something that Satan fell with, but it's something that if left unchecked, you and I can let pride run havoc, reign in our lives as we become this isolated, I don't need any help. And essentially what we're saying is, I don't need God. Um, and this is where it ends, the problem with pride. Point number five is that pride leaves no room. Listen to what Psalm 10 verse 4 says. In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him, being God. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. Pride literally leaves no room. No room in your marriage, no room in your friendships, no room in your business, in your finances, in your struggles, in your sin. It effectively creates this war and this wedge between you and God, and there is no room. Church, there is a problem with pride. And we, as followers of Jesus, when we ask God, what do you require of me? He goes, well, number one, let's work that pride issue out. And so as much as there's a problem with pride, there is a hope 
with humility. And the scripture that we read earlier, James chapter 4, verse 6, says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So if pride is not just a wall, but a war, then humility is not just a front door. It's an all-access, um, all-inclusive, backstage pass to everything you need and more. It literally is like giving God license to go to work on your behalf. Humility is... It's, it's like honey to bees, or bees, honey to bees, I thought it was bees to honey. It's honey to bees. Humility attracts God and unlocks grace. And perhaps some of you are sitting going, well, I don't really know what grace is. Grace is, is many things. It's obviously the um, unmerited favor of God. It's the way that we receive our salvation, but it's more than that. It's the empowering presence of God meaning it's the enabling presence of God. It's His Spirit helping you to be the very person you've been called to be. And so when we walk in humility, we receive this grace, which empowers us to be the person that God has called us to be. And so when you respond to God and you walk humbly, not only are you creating this personal, intimate relationship with God, which is what He desires, but He can unlock your greatest call and your greatest potential. So how do we walk humbly? Well, no doubt that our greatest example is Jesus. And Philippians chapter 2 gives us this incredible insight to how to walk humbly. And maybe the key line is, is found in verse 8 that says that he, being Jesus, humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. And we're going to look a little at what preceded that and what came after that. And it gives us this image of how do you and I walk Humbly. How, how do we follow the uh, lessons and the leading of Jesus um, so that we have the same attitude and same likeness as Jesus? Philippians chapter 2 verse 3 starts like this. This is the picture, the blueprints of how to walk in humility. Philippians chapter 2 says, don't be selfish. I feel like that's all I've said in my house for the last four years to our kids. Don't be selfish. Don't be selfish. You could share that. And I, it's not even yours. I gave it to you is the kind of continual conversation in our house. And I think many times God's probably saying that to you and me. Don't be selfish. You can share that. It's not even yours. I gave it to you. And I think many of us have to take stock, perhaps even today, and go, geez, have I built a life that is self-centered? Am I eating the whole pie? Or am I looking, okay, God, to walk in humility, I need to not be selfish. It goes on and says, don't try to impress others. If you think of how many of us build our lives around uh, people's thoughts and views of ourselves, and Will Smith says it the best, he says, we spend money that we do not have on things we do not need to impress people who do not even care. And uh, I think for all of us, we just got a caution, like, what are we doing it for? Who are we doing it for? And uh, perhaps it's best said like this, uh, to locate whether there's humility or, or pride, are we doing it for the applause of many or the well done of God? Well done, good and faithful servant. What are you building your life around? What are you looking for? The, the uh, applause or um, adoration of others? Or are you looking for the well done, good and faithful servant from God? It goes on to say this, be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. And humility effectively is thinking about everybody better than yourselves and perhaps an easy way to understand that is to think about people better than yourself is to think about them before yourself. 
meaning that you're not always at the front of the agenda. You're not always first on the list. You're thinking about others before you, which would allow you to think of them as better than you. In fact, a great definition of humility is not to think about, is to think about yourself less rather than think less of yourself. Humility is not to beat yourself up or to feel like you're unworthy, but it's to remove yourself from being at center stage, to being center of your story, is to go, God, this world, this life that you've given me is not actually about me or even for me, it's for you. And so a great marker of humility is to check the honor in our hearts. Do we actually think about people as better than ourselves? Often it's easy when we can get something or admire something from somebody, um, a leader, a boss, a celeb, but what about people who are not that? How, how do we honor them? How do we think about them? Do we think that they are better than us? The scripture pushes the point a little harder and it says, don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. And I think a great litmus test to see how your humility is going is how you treat people. And particularly the people that don't necessarily need you to treat them well. People maybe that, I don't know, waiters or petrol attendants or people who perhaps work in your home or in your business. How, how do you treat them? Do you treat them with dignity? Do they walk away from a conversation going, man, I don't know, they shouldn't. Kind of in the world systems, they shouldn't treat me like that. But man, I feel so honored and esteemed because they've treated me with great value. And so the scripture goes on and it says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus has. And um, look, I think, again, like I'm forever talking to my kids about attitudes and good attitudes and bad attitudes. I think all of us, we just need to check our attitude. Do we have an attitude of humility? And then it paints this picture of what Jesus' attitude actually looks like. It says, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. So though he was God, he didn't choose to hold on to that status. Um, and, and, and effectively, that's what humility is, is saying, I don't have to, but I will. And Adele preached a great sermon a couple of weeks ago on why should I? Why should I say sorry? Why should I be the first? Why should I do that? Why should I serve you? Why should I go above and beyond? And I want to encourage you that we need to stop clinging to our rights. I don't have to do that. No, you don't. But humility would. Humility would cross the room. Humility would say sorry first. If I think about our marriage, um, and we have a beautiful marriage, but if I think about our marriage and the tough, darker days where we've had some humdinger arguments, most of them I actually can't remember the actual reason. Mostly it's just been pride. Two people who are unrelenting to just walk across the room, say sorry, go the extra mile. And so the scripture goes on and it says this, instead, so he could have planned to being God, but instead he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being when he appeared in human form. Have you ever thought about this mind-blowing, crazy thought that Jesus, the Son of God, the maker of heaven and earth, came down to earth into the womb of a woman in order to have a human experience. But he didn't just leave it there. He took on the role of a slave, is what the scripture says. And then it goes on in the next verse to say, and then gave up his life and, and like a criminal or having a criminal's death. Jesus' humility was profound. He hung on to none of his privileges. And in fact, it's the reason that we started this series, 
this way around or this Micah 6 verse 8 this way around because unless you and I understand humility, we'll never act justly. Next week, we're going to look at like how we take the privileges that God's given us and use them to restore and rebuild and to look out for those who haven't had the privileges that we've had. We'll never do that unless we've got a right relationship with God, unless we're walking humbly with God. So maybe today you need to humble yourself. You need to make that phone call. You need to walk across the room. You need to take your wife out and say sorry. I don't know what it is, but God would be prompting, hopefully today, for you to walk with him in humility. And it goes on and says, And died a criminal's death on a cross. So he humbled himself. Oh, sorry, we just skipped a verse. Verse 8, he humbled himself. The most important verse. He humbled himself in obedience. And I don't think, and this is the kicker here, I don't think that humility happens other than through obedience. Effectively saying, God, not my will, your will be done. Uh, you think about Jesus when he has to die. He goes, and, and he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going, God, is there another way? But not my will, your will be done. It's, it's obedience. It's, it's, it's acknowledging that you are not the king on the throne, that you are not God, that he is God. And, and, and obedience is a huge litmus test for our humility. And sometimes you've got to shut your mouth when you want to open it. And sometimes you've got to say sorry when you weren't the wrong one that was wrong. And sometimes you've got to lose because it's more important to lose than it is to be right because humility is something that God wants to build in you. And i never forget our uh, senior pastor, original OG senior pastor, Von Gregg, uh, she would just tell me all the time as, as a young pastor in my twenties, uh, just eat humble pie. And I'd be like, but they're wrong. She'd go like, oh no, just eat humble pie. I'm like, no, but it's not right. She'd go, oh, no. just eat humble pie because there's something about just choosing humility. And I'm not saying you get walked over all the time, but I'm just saying sometimes the posture of humility is what God is wanting to develop in us through obedience. And it goes on and says, and he died a criminal's death on a cross. And sometimes, initially with humility, you don't get, but you get what you don't deserve. And Jesus ends up dying, but the next verse says, therefore God elevated him to a place of highest honor. And humility always precedes honor. When you, <coughs> when you walk humbly, <coughs> sorry, when you walk humbly with God, you just watch what happens. Watch how God honors and promotes and enables and pours through your life. So the last two verses as we land this today, and I really want to encourage you, these last two verses, I think, wrap up the essence of humility, and I actually don't think it would be possible to walk in true humility unless we get these last two verses right. And it says this, that the name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Essentially, it's saying this, that you and I would bow our knee, that we would acknowledge that we are not God, that just the mere presence of God, and that's what Hill was speaking about last week, just when we come into worship, there should be this adoration and this reverence before God to go, I'm going to bow my knee, I'm going to submit, I'm going to have a holy reverence, walk in the fear of God that understands, and, and I really think this, that not necessarily our church, but the church at large has lost its somewhat of its reverence for God, the holiness 
of God. I love um, where Moses has this encounter with God and God speaks to him and then tells him how he's going to use him. But before he does that, there's this burning bush experience and, and God says to him, Moses, take off your shoes or take off your sandals for you're standing on holy ground. And I think for all of us, when we truly understand that we serve a holy God, then we'll have a humble posture. I don't think that you can force humility. I don't think that you can try and garner up your own humility. It's a right relationship with God where you go, God, you're holy. You're the king of kings. You're on the throne. And I am going to respond by walking humbly with you. And so today as we land this thought about walk humbly, I want to encourage you, does your response to God look like a prodigal one when it comes to humility? Are you one who lavishly throws yourself at God and goes, you're holy, I'm humble. What you say goes, I bow my knee to you, God. And um, if that is your heart's desire today, I want to encourage you that we're going to take a moment uh, and Hill's going to land the service and pray for us. And I encourage you to open up your heart and just say again, afresh, God, my life belongs to you. I want to walk with you. I want to, I want to walk humbly with you. I want to see your grace over my life. And so I'm going to hand this sermon over to Hill now.